You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15. And this morning, we're starting at verse 22. You'll find this on page 924 of the Pew Bible. Together, we're going to be reading verses 22 through 35 of Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, verses 22 to 35, hear the word of God. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Well, as you remember, the Jerusalem Council had been convened to answer a very important question. The question concerned requirements that were placed upon Gentile converts. The Judaizers argued strenuously that they had to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas, along with others, said it was not only needless to do so, but it was wrong. A Gentile need only believe in Jesus to be saved, and there was nothing else that needed to be added. And this caused no little controversy, if you remember. So the council was convened to decide the issue. It was led by Peter and James, and the council determined that nothing was necessary but faith in Jesus. Neither circumcision nor any other ritual had any redemptive significance whatsoever. Salvation was simply and wondrously a matter of trusting in Christ. 
And from our vantage point, I think we can rejoice in this triumph of the gospel. Thank God it wasn't diluted or destroyed in the early stages of the new covenant. That's why we can worship this morning. The leaders exhorted the church to promote the truth while maintaining unity among brothers. And to that end, they sent this letter to the churches with four exhortations. And I think we need to appreciate the reason for the council's letter and its effect upon the early church. In short, they have to preserve the gospel while following certain conditions. That's not incompatible, as we'll see. For the sake of unity, people were to honor Christ by denying themselves. After all, it's one of the first elements of discipleship, right? Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, Christian. That's what Jesus says. Come and die. <laughs> That's a great way to evangelize. The style of the letter was formal with a typical Greco-Roman salutation. They used to identify the senders first. Wouldn't that be great? You always go to a letter and you looked at the very end to find out who wrote it. They said it right off the bat. And then secondly, they would distinguish the recipients. And that was followed by this customary greeting. And the letter concluded with a farewell. What that means is that the Jerusalem church was making every effort to communicate to their Gentile brethren. They did so clearly, and you can see winsomely, with Gentile believers who were familiar with the Greco-Roman style. Okay, this is what you're used to. I'll do it in your way. It was the literary style with which the Gentile Christians were familiar, and it was an effort to foster friendship and goodwill among the early Christians. They wanted to cultivate that brotherly spirit of which Jesus spoke when he said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. That's a high order. And so the Jewish believers were trying to accommodate themselves to their Gentile counterparts, and I think that's an example worth following. Christian unity, it's such a delightful and fragile blessing. Remember what it says in the Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What a wonderful thing. And Paul exhorts us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is something that we have to work at. All sorts of dangers threaten the unity of the church. All sorts of them. Internal, external. And the devil hates the communion of saints. Rest assured, he hates it. And he will strive by any means to sow discord in the body of Christ. That's why Paul says to the Colossians, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the exhortations within the council's letter were designed to promote unity. The letter was addressed to the brothers who are of the Gentiles, so it had this special application to the regions around the Mediterranean Sea, Syria, Cilicia, Antioch, 
because that's where this controversy had come to a head. And the requirements that are given here were not given for the sake of salvation, but for the sake of fostering Christian fellowship. God is impartial. You know that. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, none. But culturally, especially during this transition period, there were vast differences. Think of the two most diverse groups that you've ever come into contact with, and I doubt that they'd be as different from each other as the first century Jews and Gentiles. For centuries, thousands of years, these two groups had been segregated from each other. Talk about segregation. And now for the first time in thousands of years, these two groups are being brought together in the same church, same pew. You go from complete apartheid to full integration, and that's not an easy thing to do. So certain provisions were instituted so Christian fellowship could begin to flourish. And in the letter, the council seeks to disassociate itself from the Judaizers. Look what it says in verse 24. We've heard, rumor has it, that some persons have gone out from us. They've come from Jerusalem, and they've troubled you with words. They have unsettled your minds, although we have given them no instruction. They're not really official. <laughs> they advocated the necessity of circumcision. They came from Jerusalem, but they didn't represent us. And they went to Antioch of their own accord without official sanction, and their false teaching has been the cause of great harm to the church. He says it troubled believers unsettling their minds. That word unsettling is interesting. It's used oftentimes in Greek literature as a military metaphor to describe plundering a town. You've unsettled the town. You've taken everything from it. And so he uses it here as a graphic way to portray the harmful effect of the Judaizers. Christian assurance and security in Christ were being plundered, stolen, destroyed. Because you see, a believer's assurance of salvation is based upon three things that were being threatened at this very moment. First and foremost, your assurance and mine is based upon truth of God's promise. By faith in God's promise, we can be assured. Without this, a person could never be saved, let alone be assured. God's promises, this is his promise. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's the promise. And if I embrace that promise and believe in Christ, I'm saved. And by that same faith, I can be assured that I'm in the estate of grace. By faith, grounded upon the truth of God's promise, first and foremost. That's what your assurance is based on. If anybody ever asks you, how do you know you're a Christian? You should say, first and foremost, because I believe in God's promise. Second, Assurance rests upon a recognition of spiritual fruit in your life. 
The Spirit enables me as a believer to see the evidence of grace at work. There are changes that take place. And as the changes involved in a regenerate life become evident, it proves that I'm a Christian. And then third, and perhaps most difficult to understand, the Holy Spirit, we're told, testifies with the believer's spirit that he or she is a child of God. No special revelation, no strange internal voice. The way the best describe it is a spiritual intuition. Remember when Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So the believer knows, recognizes, has an intimate fellowship with Christ. The believer knows his father. The believer has a sense of adoption. So it's no strange feeling when that believer goes to prayer and addresses him as father. Who does that? Addresses God as father. The believer. And the Judaizers were threatening the salvation and the assurance of the Antioch Christians, undermining these three pegs. And so it was important to disassociate from their teaching. They're not of us. And the letter goes on to say that they had unanimously approved to send the delegates, Paul, Barnabas, a few others, good men fully accredited by the Jerusalem church. No hirelings, by the way. No hirelings. They had risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, genuine shepherds of the flock. They were willing to die if need be for the sake of the gospel. And if their names are any indication of race, Judas was a Jew, Silas was a Greek. And they're, they're traveling together, and it's a vivid and living illustration of the fellowship that rises above nationality. Jews and Greeks working together for the unity of the church. And as let, it mentioned, the letter outlines four requirements. Abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from strangled meat, and from fornication. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these. So by avoiding these four things, the believing Gentiles will do well. And the aim, as I said, was to promote and maintain Christian unity in the church. These four things have nothing to do whatsoever with justification. A believer's right standing before God is obtained by faith in Christ. We know that. But these four things had to do a lot with the communion of saints. The Gentiles should follow these rules so fellowship could flourish. And what is noteworthy is how they attributed the work to the Holy Spirit. Did you see that? It was the Spirit of God who led the church to accept the believing Gentiles. And it was now the same Spirit of God who led the council to settle the matter. The leaders were so conscious of his influence that they ascribe it all to him. And apparently God himself considers Christian fellowship as important. How we treat one another how we view each other, what we do for one another. 
The Lord here was dealing tenderly with the church in its transition, and the infinite maker of all things is deeply concerned about our relationships. Some of us are more relational than others. That's no excuse. He takes more interest in our relationships than any of us do. The divinely inspired letter here is proof of it. The principles of brotherly love and self-denial always make for peace. And there are two important points that I want to raise as we consider this letter. The first point is this. They clearly describe these requirements as a burden. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these. So the Spirit of God, through the Jerusalem Council, considered these rules to be burdensome. And the strategy for church unity required something of the Gentiles. At least three of these things went above and beyond the ordinary. These rules would be inconvenient, troublesome, awkward. They had to restrain themselves in things otherwise indifferent. They had to be careful and conscientious about preparing and eating food of all things. Not because they considered it important, but because they cared for their Jewish brethren. Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Ah, oh, that's a hard thing. That convicts me every time I read it. The Gentile believers had to deny themselves privileges they would otherwise enjoy. And they did so because of those for whom Christ shed his blood. Paul tells us that none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Our ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, number one. And that's supposed to govern every one of our thoughts, words, and deeds. We don't live to ourselves. We deny ourselves. We look outside of ourselves, or at least we're supposed to. And nobody who has given up his name to Christ can remain as selfish as he was. Impossible. The sanctifying influence of God's spirit will wage war with the flesh. And that means that if I am not less selfish than I was last year, something is terribly wrong. <laughs> there should be at least a bit of progress, a bit of spiritual growth. And the Gentile believers here were learning a valuable lesson about love and self-denial. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. If I tempt a soul into sin, I threaten the destruction of that soul. Yes, I believe in the preservation of the saints. Don't get upset. It's a real threat. If I shake his faith, if I stir up confusion, 
if I stoke his anger or tempt him to sin. That is to say, if I do anything to lead him to go against his conscience, I threaten to destroy him. That's sobering. That may be a soul whom Christ loved and for whom Christ died. And was Jesus willing to suffer for that soul? Am, am I unwilling to forego food of all things? Did he think it worth being crucified? Yet I can't restrain my appetite. In our culture today, there is a lot of talk about rights. Everybody has rights. Safeguard the rights. But Christianity turns that upside down and inside out and talks about love and self-denial. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What the Gentiles were being asked to do was not necessary for salvation. They could eat all the strangled meat they wanted and still be in right relationship with God. They didn't have to abstain from food because nothing's unclean in itself. Fornication was a sin that everybody has to avoid, Jew and Gentile, but the Gentiles were particularly fond of that sin. The other ritualistic concerns were matters of indifference. The reason they were imposed was brotherly love in the name of Christ. They bared the burden out of love for their brethren for whom Jesus died. And so important was it to the Spirit of God that through the council he laid it upon the church. So first of all, it was a burden. That's the first point. But there's a second one. While self-denial was a burden, it certainly was not a great burden. That's what it says. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these. It was really inconsequential in light of the purpose behind it. The salvation of souls, the fellowship of brethren, the unity of the church, are not these greater priorities than my right to eat what I want, to drink what I want, to go where I want, to wear what I want to wear? Besides, what God commands us to do, he gives us the power to perform. The Holy Spirit imposes these rules and the Holy Spirit enables us to follow them. John says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So those who are born again, who are born of God, will be able to keep his commands. And as a sincere believer, I gladly bear the burden if it promotes our fellowship. You can drink wine all you want. Don't get drunk. Drink wine all you want. 
But if that's going to disassociate yourself from some brother, or that's going to cause a problem in Christian fellowship, give it up. That's what he's saying. When the ladies provide meals for families who are in need, it's a burden. But it's one they gladly do. When men help others who can't do it themselves, it's a burden. When the deacons and the elders serve beyond and above, it can be a burden. But these are not great burdens. In fact, we willingly bear them. And we take delight in them. Because the fellowship of believers is one of the greatest joys of the Christian life. Just think of David. King David. He longed to be in the courts of God amid the fellowship of the saints. And he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He's the one who said this. As for the saints in the land, the Christians, a little anachronistic, but believers, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. What a joy that is. Why would anybody absent themselves from the joy of fellowshipping together? Christian fellowship is well worth the sacrifices that we're called to make. And the news of their decision brought joy to the Antioch believers. The letters read, everybody rejoices. They considered the burden a very small price to pay for the unity of the church. In conclusion, let me just say that it's not easy for us, I think, to fully appreciate the importance of Christian fellowship. You can call it the communion of saints. You can call it friendship in the faith. You can call it whatever you want. The point is that unity among God's people is a top priority in the Bible. So important is it that Christ's messianic identity is related to it. John 17, 21. May they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So when Christians are united, it serves as a powerful witness to the gospel. If they see us enjoying peace, not divided, of one purpose, they take notice. One proof of his messianic mission is the concord within the church. And I don't think I have to tell you that we've done a really poor job at this. By we, I mean the contemporary church, the whole contemporary church. Modern evangelicals. I'm not even talking about theological liberals or nominal Christians. I'm talking about evangelicals. I'm talking about those who claim to believe the Bible and to embrace the gospel. Our churches collectively have been plagued by controversy and conflict and disharmony, and I think it's one reason why the cause of Christ has become so insipid in our culture. Our lack of unity, our misplaced focus, our selfish desires have hindered the progress of the gospel, the uprising generation. Do you wonder why so many of our young people drift 
lack of purpose, lack of unity. So the first step is to admit our failure, to repent of sin, and to walk in love. And by striving to love one another, we can present this powerful witness. We bear burdens for each other. We deny ourselves for each other. And the unbelieving world may be wicked, but it's not stupid. It's not stupid. It recognizes and it values true love when it sees it. It can't replicate it. They don't have the spirit, but they can see it. People who know nothing of doctrine can appreciate sincere love. It will arrest their attention. It'll make them think, stop them in their tracks. Look at those Christians. They bury even our dead who've died of the plague. And so our Christian fellowship can be a powerful testimony to the Lord. It ought to be a distinguishing mark of Christians because if there's no love, there's no grace. Simple as that. No love, no grace. Unbelievers cannot grasp spiritual things, but they are perceptive and they can recognize conflict, strife, and disharmony when they see it because that's what fills the world. When it plagues the church, they say to themselves, why bother? We should be willing to bear burdens and to concede our rights for the sake of peace. As Paul says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let me illustrate by a story told by James Hewitt about missionaries in the Philippines. And these missionaries, they set up a croquet game, of all things. They're trying to teach croquet. And he goes on to say that several of their neighbors, of the natives, became interested and they wanted to join the fun. So after explaining the game of croquet to them, the missionaries started them out, each with a mallet and a ball. And now you know if you played croquet, the idea is to get to the post first with your ball. Knock those others out, get there first. So as the game progressed, the opportunity came for one of the players to take advantage of another by knocking his ball out of the court. One of the missionaries explained the procedure, but his advice only puzzled the Filipino friend. Why would I want to knock his ball out of the court, he asked. So you can win, the missionary said. The native man shook his head in bewilderment. Because you see, competition is generally ruled out in a hunting and gathering society where people survive not by competing, but by sharing equally in every activity. The game continued, but not one, not one of those natives followed the missionary's advice. When a player successfully got through all the wickets, he didn't stop playing. He'd go back and he'd help his fellow players. And as the final player, the worst of the croquet players, moved toward the last wicket, his successful completion of the course was still very much a team effort. They're all helping him on. And finally, when he passed through the last wicket, the team shouted happily, we won, we won. That's how the church, the body of Christ, should be. We're a team. We live this life together. 
We bear each other's burdens. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. That's what the early church did. That's what we ought to do. And as disciples of Jesus, because that's what we call ourselves, we should imitate the sin bearer of the church. We magnify God's glory. We promote the gospel. We strengthen the souls of God's people. And we experience joy. And thus, the benefits far outweigh the burdens. So let us love one another. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, and as a close second, the precious unity among brothers and sisters. We pray that you'll help us to promote that unity, which even serves as a witness for Christ himself. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.